1: This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So I'm very excited about this week's show and my conversation with composer Nico Muley, whose score for the Apple TV Plus series Pachinko is nothing short of masterful. Now Nico is such a talent. At age 40, he's already racked up an impressive amount of diverse work. He seems equally at home composing chamber music, opera, film, and TV scores. He's had operas commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera, the English National Opera. He scored the film The Reader and the BBC series Howard's End. And he has collaboration credits with the likes of Björk, Grizzly Bear, Sufjan Stevens, and Bryce Dessner of The National. In our conversation, we talk about how the incredible score for Pachinko came together, what he learned working as Philip Glass' assistant, how being open about his mental health has helped his work, and much more. We talk about some specific tracks on the Pachinko soundtrack, so I recommend you listen to them to get the full experience. The soundtrack is on Spotify, and I mention the names of the tracks. And here's my conversation with the great Nico Muley. Nico Muley, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So my listeners and my friends have heard me obsess about pachinko, which is really a masterwork, and your your music included. The series has so many elements coming together so perfectly. Your music does this as well. You actually go from the 1920s to the 80s. You go between Korea and Japan, multiple time periods. I want to start off by asking, at what point did you come into this project, and how did you approach the music from that point from the start
0: so the origin story of this was that sue the showrunner who was you know i is is in so many ways kind of the 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 brains and the heart behind this thing um she had listened to a bunch of my a bunch of my um non-film music and sort of chamber music and concert pieces and called me up about a year ago maybe or a little bit more maybe maybe it was maybe december even of 2020 um and explained the project i had read pachinko um, and loved it, and um, I almost immediately said no because I was worried about being the only not East Asian person sort of, you know, involved in, in the creative processes, and my and my recollection of the book, of course, is that it's this one kind of linear narrative, um, but then when she explained that they were actually dividing it up and that it was a kind of on shuffle mode a little bit in terms of the times, and it's, it was a lot more about connecting earlier things to later things and that the music would function in a much more emotion, emotional way both abstract um and direct so that that actually opened up um for me a, a sense of a language that I would feel comfortable doing without you know I, I basically said right at the beginning like if you want East Asian anything like you've got to hire someone else <laughs> because like there's not going to be like I can't no like that's not <laughs> No. <laughs> so,
1: but did you use any Japanese Korean sound instrumentation? No, no, that's Nothing not my right?
0: business. No, 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 no. Absolutely that that it, like the, the degree to which that would be inappropriate is like immeasurable. So I I um I basically said that right from the outset. It's like this is gonna be in my language, both obviously harmonically, but also but also um sonically. So from there, you know, the 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 music's role. Um, again, there, there are moments where it's hyper-specific to where we are, right? It's hyper-specific to, you know, we're in a market in whatever year. Um, and then it also has to make these big connections between, and, and ser- sometimes in certain scenes, that there, there's some montages, there's a scene, I'm not sure if it's been released yet, but maybe in episode six, where we're, we're soon just packing, everyone's packing the, and, you know, middle-aged her and young her and old her and every, it's and it's all, it's one big kind of four-minute Thing that has to be that has to be held together, um, and it's more or less in silence. So the music, the music has to do a lot of bridging. So once we knew that, I decided, you know, I it's I can't do something where the the grain of the music changes from year to year because the point is that it's like this genetic pull, right? And that there's a kind of original sin to the story. Not that I'm not. I use sin in, in a kind of metaphorical way, not an actual way. That that goes through the bloodline of the characters and so for instance i thought you know the i definitely wanted to use some electronic instruments but why not have those present in the teens and the 20s if they're going to be present in the 80s right so the bad version would be if solomon's music were like this kind of hard hitting electronic music <laughs> um and then you know and then everything else was kind of acoustic and gentle and and so i just avo- i i tried to i tried to keep the music pretty nimble in terms of um not ever belonging to one place, and not necessarily ever belonging to one character. There, there are themes that recur, but they're very simple themes, and they're very plastic and malleable.
1: Every character doesn't have a theme.
0: Yeah, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to because again, it, it it's it's like they're all it, they're the interconnectivity of it is what to me is interesting, and I feel like I feel like insisting on it being a kind of epic in the way that you know, the, the brilliance of something like Star Wars or whatever, where it's like you these themes, the, the point of this and then this abuts this and that turns into this and transforms into it's sort of Wagnerian in concept. But I wanted to keep this very much like in the family, if that makes mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. So, so that, because then from there you can, you can hear, so the, there's one, there's one kind of external, I would say motive more than theme, um, which is the idea of empire. And oftentimes you see that when their cards show where something is, just says you know Busan whatever year or Osaka whatever year, and there's there's a series of chords that that come along with that that represent a kind of oppressive, tightly wound, um, hard to untangle like harmony that that you that you start to that, that you become because you start associating it with the remnants of of empire and of colonialism, both really 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 obvious right where it's like don't speak don't speak korean on the train and then the subtle way that Hana tells solomon you're never going to make it they're always going to know there's always going to be something so those chords appear there too that there's and you know when when um when solomon is caught shoplifting those chords are there too
1: the score here and i'm not forgive me for sounding really naive when i'm asking these questions because i'm not of course as versed in in music but the score here um this is not A score where the music knows the plot before the viewer, if you know what I mean. Um,
0: Yes, thank you for phrasing it that way. That's that's actually what I say too. (laughs) Okay, good.
1: (laughs) Um, That's not something. That's
0: the way I describe. That's the way I describe a lot of a lot of movie music. Is like, how much does it know? What what does it know, and when did it know it? Yeah. Sorry, say it again. Sorry. How do you
1: feel about that in general? That type of scoring for film and TV.
0: I mean, I think every movie needs a different thing. I mean, I think everything needs, you know yeah every, i mean every project requires a, a different sense of of how much the score knows and when does it know it and does it know it before us or does it, does it does it does it click exactly with our revelation i mean i think you know i think horror can't work without the music knowing a little bit more right like you couldn't you couldn't make sense of rosemary's baby without that thing mm-hmm. whereas something you know something like for instance the wicker man where all the music is kind of either diegetic or you know it starts with this folk song and you don't really you don't really sense anything as up aside from a vague sense of paganism which of course you can find in like Joni Mitchell or something and then it switches with us when we realize that something that something is 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 twisted or in you know in in the in the later Star Wars is where you where you watch things that were good become bad and and the music kind of foreshadows that I mean I think I think that works in that context so I don't have a philosophy about it but I, I do think it's something worth deciding um and it's something that I actually had to deal with in in um, a couple years ago, or maybe fifteen years, however long ago it was, with that movie, The Reader, mm-hmm. which is really complicated because, because in that particular case, you have this very, very, very morally ambiguous, or not ambiguous, but you, a morally complicated character who's a sort of lover and teacher, but also war criminal, maybe, and also, you know, also illiterate, and you know, so and then the score could really throw it; it, it could really tip tip the balance very early, right? If it and and we're talking about like you put one oboe on her
1: yes.
0: and it says she's a spider. You know what <laughs> I mean? Or you put or you put one harp on it and it's like it's like saying what she did was okay. Yeah. So there's a real uh, and and with this, you know, with, with this, with this the, the the character I think made me do the most work like that was Hansu. Because I had I had to I had to make sure that when he sees it for the first time that he's not the big bad wolf, right? Even though they have him in like that crazy zoot suit. I don't know what's going <laughs> on with that. But but like, and so I was like, I'm gonna write like a kind of tango and I'm gonna write something actually quite, quite um uh generous to them, generous to that situation. And you know, the way that the way that it's framed too, it's not not the dance at the gym, right? And from quite West I Story. story. Yeah. And you think, well, you know, the score—the score in West Side Story does not tell us that everyone's going to die at that moment. You give them that moment before everyone kills everyone else's brother and whatever. Yeah.
1: <laughs> First, we're happy, and then we die. Right?
0: Yeah, well, it's, but you know, but again, the, the, there would there would be a version, right, where when he tries to choke her out in the in the in the fish hut, you know, a couple episodes later, that we have that music there. So, you know, and then the other thing I should say, and, and definitely when you edit this together, please include this that that um, Susanna Peretz, the music editor, was so incredibly genius. I mean, she was in many ways an equal partner. That was incredibly helpful to run these ideas by her and to say, what do you think if I tried this? And, and I, I, I will not lie to you. Sometimes I would write two exact opposite versions of a single cue and see, you know, it's like, what's the version where he's a monster right away? And what's the version where, you know, there are a lot of things in the beginning where I sense the power of the music could could do something uh unwanted. So it's, you know, for instance, when she's when she's um when she's diving for abalone and then her father can't see her, you yeah, know, that's tense. I could yes. I it's tense, but I almost had I almost turned it into a horror movie, right? Because there's a way in which it's kind of like Jaws, yeah. right? Where it's like she's gonna get stuck in the yeah. rock again. She's and get not eaten coming by, back like, up. Right, exactly. And then you have to do something in between, right, where it's not about it's not about is she going to die, but it's about this connection with her father, which then, of course, is in, in, is insisted on later when you have this kind of Hirohito's death and then the dad dying of coughing up blood and he's like drowning in his own. I mean, there's there's so much going on there that I didn't want to overload it right away.
1: Um, can, can we break down one scene that I know so many people talk about? And that's the, the rice wedding scene. The music there is amazing.
0: That was one of the big challenges right away. Mm-hmm. The and and you know this is this is again one of these cultural one of these cultural um, things that I had to get my head around, which is that the value, the, the cultural value, and the emotional value, and the you know combination of of the the intersection of all the things that that bowl of rice meant. And the way that, you know, and then also, you know, previous Rice interactions where it's like, you know, she goes to the Rice guy who's like, then no, and no, no, only Japanese people can have that. You know, Sue, so very interestingly, she was like, this is a sacred moment. And so she tempted it with a piece of choral music that I had written actually from, from a mass setting, like from an actual piece of music that happens in churches. And that was an interesting wow. challenge because, you know, it's a, it's a risk because I didn't want it to sound out of... Keeping with, with everything else to have this kind of choral information. Um, but what I decided to then do was combine all the instruments that are in it, um, all playing it in a layer. So you have all the strings, you have all the woodwinds, you have, you have eight voices maybe, but it's all overdubbed and whatever. Um, and to write something that feels, feels like it's always, always been happening, mm-hmm. that it's, it's just something that it's just something that's like a cyclical piece of information, you know, I, I thought a little bit about my um, mother and my grandmother, both amazing cooks. They're, they're French in origin. My grandma's French. And there is that way in which you bury a lot of affection in the way that you make something. And the idea that something is, is you know, grown by you and cooked by you or like that you've bartered all that you've spent a lot of money on this thing. And so you treat it as a more more in the way that one treats like a relic in the Catholic faith, faith than Just something that you bought it, you know.
1: And this is kind of also the last meal that the mother makes for her before she may never. Correct. It's so loaded, this scene. And you did it beautifully. One more track before we move on. A track called Osaka 1931 and Busan 1989 is one of those where you go, you Mm -hmm. make that huge leap.
0: Yeah, give me a second to listen to it. One second. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's funny because it, of course in my mind that's still like you know two m nine like I still have the I still have the the code that we used for it. Yeah. So that's doing a lot of work. Um, there's there are a lot of sub motives in there. So there's this kind of moving this which is yes. represents kind of industry. You know, there's yeah, sort of industriousness. You hear that over markets. Uh-huh. When it, so when she's like when she's in the market originally. Um, and then when she's at the market, like at, when, she go, when she goes back, and is like, "I used to, I used to dig abalone five times this big, right?" And then you have the empire chords, like those kind of stacked up. Um, I would say ambiguous chords because it's like the it's the industry that's that's keeping things on. Um, and then what it does. And what I was, what I was trying to make sure that it did was that the energy is always there. So the whole thing is the same tempo technically, but things move at kind of different, different um, paces within that tempo. And again, linking the time by, by saying, this is the same music. This is the same thing. Right. I mean, I don't know. And I think this is something that, that, that comes back and forth in the, in the score and also in the, in the, um, in the show is that you're in the same place and sometimes it's like, it's you know, things are always the same or whatever things, you know, and then other times it's exactly the opposite.
1: But going back as a boy, you were part of the choral tradition, I understand. And and I read that you said that Benjamin Britten's Rejoice in the Lamb with texts by Christopher Mm -hmm. Smart is one of the reasons you are a composer today. Um, I'm not familiar with this. Could you just briefly talk about?
0: Well, you should be. (laughs) It's the best. It's It's the absolute best first of all fix your life yes. <laughs> and get to know and 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 secondly i mean it's a long form piece of sort of sacred music christopher smart was a poet who um was himself in, uh institutionalized for sort of un, what it's unclear how to diagnose him in modern terms but it seems like it was something like mania and or schizophrenia um a lot of his must much of his work is um ecstatically sacred almost and sometimes it goes it turns into pure not not wordplay but sort of the rhymes are so fast and so tight that it feels more like it belongs a little bit more to a kind of intense like Dr. Susie energy but then there are moments of of you know um there are moments of absolute kind of felicity there's kind of a narrative to it where you ha- you go from finding finding relationship with God with, in flowers, right? Or, fly, or finding relationship in God by seeing how a cat behaves. This sense that the things around you are what are imbued with the sacred rather than, you know, it being abstract and out of touch. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, and
1: this spoke to you.
0: Yeah, and it, was, it spoke to me both musically and as a concept. Um, and, and also and also to have something so generously written for children essentially i mean it's for it's for a four part choir but but the the youngest ones would be boys and as it, as it was when i sang it and it's i don't know if you ever read a book when you were a kid where where you know in a, if you're in school reading 10 books a lot of them you feel like you're at a remove from it and other times you feel like it's literally been written for you oh absolutely yeah <laughs> It's something that I, you know, uh, carry with me <laughs> yeah. every, everywhere I, everywhere I go. Um,
1: well, your passion is just. I'm. I'm definitely going to fix my life now. I get into this. Listening to yeah, video. yeah, and, and
0: email me. Email me. I'll send you the two recordings that you should get. It's <laughs> I will.
1: You um, were also an assistant to Philip Glass. Tell me what you sort of learned mo- the most from him.
0: It's a tricky one. I mean, Philip. Philip is like. There's no one really like him, um, I don't think. And he, you know, he has this thing. He has this thing where you know he does sake He does not sacred music. He does music that is for the stage. He does operas. He does this. He does that. He does film music, and it's all part of one muscle for him. Like you and he. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and that, thats the thing I learned. That's the thing I learned is that you can you can you can you can have it all. No, but if you sort of stick to your, if you're. If you're confident enough in your style, whatever your style means, what you're in, in your process, then doing something, going from writing a film score to an opera or whatever, it's sure it sounds a little bit different, but it, it comes from the same place. So you're not like putting on a new outfit to do a different thing. Um and the other thing with Philip, he's you know, his work ethic is insane. Like he he just writes all the time. He never he never kind of takes a bunch of shortcuts, he's just up and, and writing. Um and, um, so so with Philip also, I mean, you know, it's interesting because his music, I think, is inimitable, and you can try it and it never works. Any people people try to imitate it all the time, and there's always something like jacked up about it, and you can hear it in a second. Um, whereas with the real deal, it's like, you know, the, it, it, there's just something about it that that works so perfectly, and every note has to be what it is, or it'll be or, or it'll off. be off. Um, um, there's also a, 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 a A thing that's true, which is that if you are ever, if you are watching anything, so if you're watching the news or whatever, like if, you know, literally you could be watching anything that doesn't have music, just start playing field Glass under it and suddenly it's like real important. Yeah. Right? So you'd be watching an interview with like Kamala Harris and then try like. (laughs) Like, and suddenly, oh my God. Um, So, so, you know, with with Philip, it was just great to be kind of around that. I mean, he himself is not a very, not a very, um, uh, he's not like, let me teach you a lesson. You just kind of observe Mm -hmm. from it. Um, And yeah, he's he's such a hugely important, important figure in my development as a human being. (laughs)
1: You've been very open and helped so many people by writing about and talking about your struggles with with mental health. Um, in 2015, mm. you wrote about your battles with depression and 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 um, what led you to write about this?
0: You know, this is funny. <laughs> it's funny that you should say it. so I've been spending a lot of time in in the UK. And I still do. I was sort of half and half for a long time. And there's still a pretty tangible stigma here. About talking about it. As recently as 20 minutes ago, I was just talking to a friend who's like nervous about getting on medication, even though he has like serious anxiety. And it's like, you know, it feels like you're failing yourself. And, but, you know, in New York, you meet someone new and you ask, how much are they paying for rent and who do you see for a shrink? It's like, you know, it's the first two things that you ask. So I've been spending a lot of time in the UK and I've been, I've been talking to a lot of musicians in the UK where I am now about, you know, just stigma and, and a weird sense of, of, what it represents to seek help and what kind of help it is that you're seeking. Um, and I had been in a very weird place with medication for a long time. Like it, I wasn't, I was slightly mis misdiagnosed, not misdiagnosed, but basically the, the treatment situation was not working anymore. And I, I was being treated for depression, but it should have been for manic depression, which is the, the condition under which I thrive or whatever you're meant to say now. <laughs> I don't think you say suffer with anymore. But, um, so, so two things happen simultaneously. I've been having a lot of conversations with my friends that I felt kind of circular and frustrating. And then I switched medication and it was like, it was like the end of that Britain, which is sort of what I wrote about in that, in that article, which was that, It was like all this stuff just cleared away, and then I could see, you know. And the point is that you're not like fixed forever, but you can see what is a fixable thing on your own, and then you can also see what chemically was off. And you and and you know, getting your getting your meds right is is step one in a lot of cases, and then you can figure out what what remains. And And that was something I just felt like I really wanted to write about in a way that was really open and completely like. Um, you know, almost like ask me anything, and I think, I think what I tried to do in that was also say like it's not you're not going to be fixed forever. You can still be an asshole. You can still mess up, and you can still behave like the like the person who's constantly like dodging. You know, because that's what it that's what it felt like before I got my stuff right, where I was so I was so manic all the time, where every interaction I had that was frustrating felt like I was in the matrix, like dodging bullets, like in slow motion and, and everything felt like an assault and it was really difficult to, to focus. And so that I had to kind of plow through in this, in this, what felt like superhero way. It was really unhealthy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So getting, getting it right was, was to me something that, because I'd been, I'd been going through it for so long. I just felt like I was in a position to talk about it in a way that was really straightforward yeah so so that's that's what that that's what that was I hope I I love hearing that it's that it's been helpful
1: but one of the things I know a lot of creative people worry about is the taking medication that you know somehow that will disappear Mm -hmm. is that ever part of your worry or
0: yeah of course of course and and Mm -hmm. you know it's it's I mean I I say this now as a as a as a New Yorker who has access to, you know, as, as I have, I have access to it. And I I also made it like a financial priority to do, to get this right. Um, Cause you know, once upon a time I was just like, ah, whoever takes my insurance, ah, it can only be Tuesdays. Ah, you know, it was just this kind of, so, but then I said, you know, I, this is extensive, right? You have to see a psychopharmacologist. You have to like talk about your, your thing. You have to, t- you have to have actually take notes about how you're feeling because you, it's entirely, possible, especially if you're kind of manic, that you'll just lie to your psychopharmacologist to make the appointment go faster. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to deal with. So I made it a priority to be on a drug that allowed me to feel like a creative human being and well. But the thing was, the other thing was, you know, the, the sad thing was thinking back about how unwell I had been in the years that I was like coming up or whatever, sort of starting to get recognized or any, you know, and, and some of those I don't even remember, like some, some old pieces, I have absolutely no recollection of having written them because I was in such an altered state. So you think, well, you know, if, if the trade-off is literally not remembering what should have been joyful episodes and, and, and joyful processes of creation, like if you can't remember that, then, you know,
1: then what are you doing? So it's okay.
0: it's, It's okay. If whatever you're on, you know, maybe slows you down a little bit or, or, you know, gives you, gives you acne or, you know, it's like, I mean, there are, I mean, there are a lot of things that can, there are a lot of things that can, that can um, basically the, 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 if anyone is listening to this, who's, who's struggling, I would, I would say, you know, or not even struggling, just questioning it's, it's definitely worth thinking about to talk to someone to see if the, if your problems are three-dimensional enough that, If there's a way to kind of just move a couple of things out of the way so you can see what's at the heart of the matter. And it could be that what's at the heart of the matter is an illness, as it was, I think, in my case. Or it could be that the heart of the matter is like trauma that you have to address in a different way. But even then, like medication can make the peripheral demons take a sabbatical while you deal with the whatever the whatever the central, you know, issue is. Sorry, I went on for too no, long, no, but that's, no. that was my, that's my.
1: And other than those men, do you, what do you do to take care of yourself now?
0: Well, COVID, COVID fucked it all up. I mean, I was, I was, doing, I was doing great. You know,
1: it <laughs> fuck it I up for doing, all of us.
0: <laughs> it fucked it up. It fucked it up. I mean, there's, I, there's no other way to say it. And I'm so over people being like, it was just a gift to have so much time. I'm like, I wish I had kept the receipt, like get me out of this nightmare. I, I, it was, it was horrible. So no, the, I mean, they, right now my routine is is more or less non-existent. I mean, I'm I'm taking it as it comes. Like, uh, you know, interestingly, I'll, I'll say two things. The thing that kept me going, connecting connecting back to white rice, was an an obsessive relationship with cooking in the first like year of the. And I cook really well, and I I cook often, whatever. But but um, to fill in the void of having something to do in the evenings, you know, the option was to essentially drink enough negronis to forget that you were in a pandemic, which is not the, the healthiest way to do. I do not recommend that. <laughs> um, or to say, all right, well, you know, it used to be that at six I would meet someone then we would go to the opera and then we'd go out afterwards for sushi whatever. So then you say, all right, what's actually gonna happen today is that at six o'clock, I'm gonna make some like really elaborate Thai thing that has like 9 million ingredients and requires going to like five different stores in Queens. And, you know, that, that was amazing actually. And it helped me a lot to just light a candle you know, make the thing, make it nice, make it right, garnish it right. Um, you know, it sounds a little crazy because I think, I think most of my brain was like, you could also just order a pizza and face plant in it. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was part of my routine. I mean, you know, another part of my routine was stu- score study, just, just like getting up and look, you know, so randomly today, you know, score study creates continuity for me. So it's like, so this week I, I'm, I went from new york to london now i'm in cambridge for a week for this big crazy project and then i go to la for three days or four days and then so the what what i'm doing is studying mozart piano sonatas just like literally by study i mean like with the score opening up just going through listening to recording or not and that that to me will be like a through line of of continuity um through this you know
1: that's amazing i don't
0: find travel stressful i'm like you know can i tell you like the, being on an airplane is like my absolute favorite thing in the world but, but is it, you know but also during covid what was great was to have pachinko because it was such an enormous amount of work and you know it was also like you know it was it was great to watch uh because everyone's lives are so much sadder than
1: mine
0: <laughs> but it was But it was it was a nice piece of continuity to have such a big project and and to be perfectly honest i think if it hadn't been covid i wouldn't have been able to to do it
1: you've given some of the best advice you talked about that no one clapped for box music that you shouldn't go seeking validation
0: yeah i mean that's something that i i mean that comes out of the i mean so to put that in a little bit of context for for is that you know because most of my early musical experiences were in a church choir which is to say that you're in a you're in a sacred environment right the music is happening at specific times of year for specific Functions um, in a context in which no one is like applauding for it, and no, and no one—it's no one has bought tickets. Um, it's you know, the interaction is very stylized between the, perf- the performers—if that's even the right word—and the congregation. Um, and for me growing up with that sensibility of you know this is a piece by William Byrd that you will hear one time a year at 11:45 in the morning and that's what you get right <laughs> and and so that was so baked into my sense of of um, how to think about music in a self-effacing way that's honest where you think you know, short, fine, like, I compose the thing, so I will take a bow, and people will clap at the opera, or whatever, but if if you approach it as a thing that, that has, in some way, in its DNA, this other origin story, I think it, I think, um, again, it's a useful thing to consider, if you're, if you're a composer, I mean, again, you know, you said, you or said, or if you're industry, anything, like, really, or if you're anything, yeah, if you do anything, exactly, if you're doing anything, um, but, but it's funny, because I, I don't really, I mean, I happen to, I happen to do a fair amount of film, but I don't feel very, I don't feel very connected to the capital I industry. And I have, you know, I have a bunch of of friends and colleagues who are, who are, are are very much in it, but I, I um, am, I don't necessarily feel really plugged into that world all the time. And for instance, you know, like I'm, I'm the reason I'm here is I've written an hour-long harp piece with narration and plain chant that's happening on Holy Saturday that's based on the 14 stations of the cross, which is pretty much the least, the least filmic thing <laughs> you could possibly do. It's like highly abstracted.
1: Well, you're gonna have to get used to the validation. You're gonna get so many awards and things for this pachinko score.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. But you know, but interestingly, you know, this is this is another thing I worry about sometimes with with doing. When I'm writing for film, it's like I don't want people. To, I mean, it's great if people are like, "Wow, that score was great." That makes me really happy. But I want them to say the that show was great, right? And and to not be able to even divorce the score from the show for me is the trait. In the same way, you know, I I I was I I forgot who said this, but in a sense, if you're if you're a designer, and you dress someone for something, for their wedding or for the, you know, the, the compliment that you want to get is not that dress looks great on you, but the compliment is you look great. Do you see? It's a subtle distinction, but in the, but in the same way, it's like, if I get a new shirt or something, or if I take a long time to put an outfit together, or, you know, if I take a long time to make my house, no, the house is a wrong example, but it's like the the point is that the the show needs to be great, and I want to be I want to be one element of of that, and it's a team effort, um, and it's it, you know, and it's like it wouldn't the score wouldn't make sense if the sound design didn't make sense, and the score wouldn't make sense if the costumes were crazy, and the costumes wouldn't make sense if the score was crazy. So that you know, the, it's a big big process, and because the score is last, um, basically along with sound, it is easy, I think in some ways to, to um, afford yourself more, more credit, but, but, you know, just, just going, just watching the first episode, which I did the other day, it's like, you know, watching the the subtleties of the performance that when you're writing on a deadline, you kind of don't fully, you, you, of course you see it, but now to see the whole thing together, you really, really see it.
1: Do you have a dream left, a piece of something you'd want to write for or, or, you know, something you haven't achieved yet?
0: I mean, people make fun. I'm a really not ambitious person. I'm not I'm not kidding you like that. And I'm yeah, I'm not I'm really not like like out there trying to trying to, you know. And I I think I this is I don't say that is a morally, you know, I'm not saying that's like a morally good thing because I know I have the luxury of not having to hustle as much as I would have done like 10 years, you know what I mean? Like, but, I, but I think, you know, f- for me, it's less about what specific thing, sorry, I just made myself look crazy, what specific <laughs> thing I'm looking for, right? But more keep on doing a wide enough breadth of things in a way that is like as community oriented as possible I want to be, I I want to just keep this like web happening of different things. And I feel like if there, again, if there's any composers listening to this, you know, it's great to have goals, but you don't want it to necessarily feel like, you know, like Gollum or whatever, where it's like, I need this one orchestra commission. Yeah. Like the precious. Right. So, and I think that's, that's like a way to make yourself go really crazy. Whereas, you know, being part of a community of makers and, you know, um, to, just to give you a, fi- a final it's like when, you know, when I, when I recorded Pachenko, we I recorded it with one of my longest collaborators, Fritz Myers, who also mixed and mastered it, and we recorded it with like all of my friends for playing playing all the instruments, and I knew that was really important. Like we could have recorded it in like Prague or something, but but I knew it was important to, you know, no, no one had any work or any money, like to, you know, to kind of be again like make it part of a team. Um, so that's my my biggest ambition is to like broaden that and keep it all keep it all good.
1: Well, Nico, this was so amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I know that you're my
0: absolute pleasure. Thank you for your good questions. Also, I appreciate it. It's not not always thus.
1: Thank you so much to Nico Muley. Pachinko is on Apple TV Plus right now. And thank you so much for joining us on Pop Culture Confidential. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Don't you
0: know that you a grown up?